Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hi, welcome to episode 18 of the Silmarillion Seminar. My name is Chris Stevens for the Tolkien Professor and my fellow Silmarillionaires. This week we focus on chapter 17 entitled, Of the Coming of Men into the West, or as the group has named it, Everybody Loves Finrod. The discussion ranged over a wide variety of topics, much of it surrounding how awesome Finrod is. Apologies to Jordan. We start with a discussion of Finrod's first meeting with the men of Beor and the migration of men into Beleriand. Special focus was on the nature of death as it relates to the fate of men and each race's understanding of men's destiny. In addition, we spent some time discussing the effects of Morgoth's spy on the debate of the men of Estelad, and then we had a rather lengthy debate on the decisions and the leadership skills of Haleth. Now, I really like Haleth because uh, she kind of spit in the eye of both Caranthir and Thingol, so that makes her all right in my book. So without further delay, let's join the discussion. Good evening, everybody. All right, well, let's uh, get into it. I know you guys uh, had uh, put up a bunch of uh, really good questions uh, last week and have added a couple this time. So um, let's see. Let's start, Laura, with it looks like, I think... Laura, is that your question? Yeah. Uh, let's let's start with the um, start, Laura. First with yours, and then with Jack's that you seconded. Um, the point that you make here, Laura, is something that I think is really central to this, and I, I think it's a good way to get into our discussion of what happens with men in this chapter, as we can kind of contextualize it based on what we've been seeing and talking about before. Um, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about the finding of the elves. It seems that the that the uh, elves have sort of the same relationship with men at their uh, at their coming about that uh, the Valar had with the the Eldar. Um, uh, Finrod comes and finds them, and uh, the men are basically blown away by by him and think he is actually one of the gods. And uh, Finrod also uh, something that really struck me is very similar is that Finrod invites them to come and live with them with the elves, basically similarly similar to how the Valar uh, invited the elves to come live with them in Amman. Uh, and so there's sort of that that mentor-mentee relationship, sort of, or almost even a parental relationship. It, it sort of seemed to me with the um, the elves and the and the men and the um, and the Valar and the and the elves. And I was really interested to hear what you were gonna what you have to say about that. Yeah, I, it's definitely I think a really central thing. Um, there's no question that the um, there's no question that the parallelism is really strong, and you can you can kind of go really far with it. You 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 can keep doing it. Um, you've got not only the the fact that you have the one Noldor coming among uh, coming among the humans and, uh, uh, and 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 talking with them in the way that Arome, as this kind of outrider, uh, found the elves by himself, and as you say, inviting them to come and live among them, even the parallelism of the three different kindreds crossing the mountains at different at differing speeds um, yeah i mean it's the the parallels in the two situations are very clearly uh, um, 
they're, I mean, they're, they're, they're very strong. And I think, you know, especially now, given the sort of the conspicuousness of the fact that the one who goes among the humans, the one who is in the Arome situation, is one of the Noldor. Um, that is one of the elves who accepted the invitation and then didn't exactly think better of it, but, um, but anyway, have then left uh, and, and come back. Um, the fact that, you know, sort of, it, 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 it puts some more pressure on that invitation, I think. And, you know, we have been thinking quite a bit about the significance of that invitation and whether the Valar did right by doing that and what have been the consequences of that choice and what might have happened had they not made that invitation and everything. And uh, so I think that, and again, especially since it's one of the it's one of the Noldor who's doing this. I think that we can't help but, um, nor do I think we should help, um, asking those questions and thinking about, is this a bad idea too? Um, what do you yeah, guys think? It, is it, well, there was Lord, one, one other thing that struck me as being a little different. When the, when the men are invited to come live with the elves, a lot of them become servants of the elves, which is not exactly what happened in Amman. In Amman, they were free to live among themselves. They didn't really, they weren't in that vassal type relationship, at least not, at least not overtly. Yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, I agree that it sort of seems, um, the way that this chapter emphasizes the relationship between them, there is a lot more emphasis on the vassalage of the of the men and their their being as servants. But but remember also, I mean, remember the Vanyar, you know, sort of living at the feet of Manwe and Varda on Tiniquitil. And I mean, it's not like that's not a good thing and everything, but um, there do seem to be, you know, they do seem to have kind of attached themselves as vassals to Manwe. Um, and that, of course, as we can see, is not... Um, that's not a degradation of them. That's an elevation of them. But I think that we also have to be careful here because this is an elevation of the Adine as well. Um, one thing that is pretty clear, and this is a pretty clear pattern that we can see all the way along, um, the elves, when the elves go over and live with the Valar in Valinor, they become greater. We see that the Calaquendi are much greater and, well, brighter and and uh, and stronger than the Moraquendi who stayed in Middle-earth the whole time. Um, just so the Adine, who live among the Eldar, are going to be bigger and stronger and greater and mightier and wiser and smarter than the other men who have not uh, come across. This is going to be one of the reasons. Uh, now, of course, things get a little bit different with uh, with Numenor. Um, there's a little bit more to the, the, the magnificence of the Numenorians than just what happens with the rest of the Adine. But still, there's a difference. Um, and of course, we'll see this reflected even in smaller ways later on, like, for instance, Merry and Pippin growing larger uh, and wiser as a consequence to their being away with the Great Ones in the South when they come back to the Shire. But, uh, but again, you know, there's this pattern. And remember, and, and what we can see in all of those patterns are sort of two things at once. That first, by association with the great and the mighty, we have these, uh, you know, these sort of lesser beings, to some extent, which have been made greater, which have been elevated by that. Um, and uh, we have, but, but, but it's not just, but it's not only or sort of simply a promotion. It's also a 
it's also through service. I mean, all of them serve the greater ones with whom they live. The men as vassals, even, of course, as you said, to think of the Lord of the Rings parallel, even Merry and Pippin, of course, swear fealty and become vassals. Both of them become vassals uh, to human lords. So, you know, I, 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 I think that we have to be cautious before feeling too uncomfortable with the what seems to be the subjection or the subordination of the humans, because this is also a kind of promotion, and that kind of humility and service seems almost always to be tied with promotion um, in Tolkien's world. Um, and certainly, the 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 of all of the men, if you even think of the differences among the different kindreds of the men, the ones who stay most independent are the people of Haleth, and they're the ones who are going to grow least high. Um, the ones who grow highest are the descendants of Hador uh, up in Hithlam, um, the guys who are serving under Fingolfin and Fingon in the north, and they're the ones who are most, you know, we're told that they're, they're, they are most completely tied, most completely subjugated uh, to the elves. They're the ones who decree that only the elven tongue will be spoken uh, by them. Um, so you know we see this that that sort of the uh um the subordination the 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 humility of the humans being sort of most fully linguistically expressed there and yet they're going to be the greatest they're going to be the greatest highest and most glorious of all of the adain um and then sort of in the middle you have beor's descendants um of whom Baron is going to be one. So I, I, I think that we can see this kind of trend, which I think should sort of caution us um, against sort of being, sort of looking too quickly askance at the apparent servitude of the men. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that taking them into service is a, is, is obviously a good idea on the part of the Eldar. Um, but uh, but I think from the Edain's perspective, serving loyally and humbly does seem to be a good thing, or at least to have really good uh, results. Um, but what do you guys think? More um, more on uh, the elves' perspective there. More on on this parallel between the invitation, you know, the reaction that the elves have to the men, uh, and their invitation to come and join them, and the Valar. Do, do, do does this sort of make us? automatically worried about this? Are there differences that you perceive in the two situations that kind of offset the parallels? What do you guys think? Joe, go ahead. Well, um, just one big difference I noticed is the men were actually traveling and, like, seeking already. They were trying to find something, and uh, it seems like they jumped into it almost a bit more willingly. I mean, they felt as if they were kind of missing something and they were trying to seek it, whereas the elves were kind of hanging out and singing and having a good time, and then you know, Orome stumbled upon them, more more or less. So, uh, I just it seems like there's a difference there, and uh, this situation seems different too. Like, uh, the elves are kind of at war, so at a standstill. But I mean, recruiting someone to help you is like a good thing. So it seems like they also have more of a reason to want to bring those people into the world than the Valar. Yeah, which of course, you know, by itself could make it sort of seem more, uh, more, uh, more selfish. And of course, you know, one could make a really cynical uh, reading of that and say like, ah, oh, well, you know, like we need some cannon fodder. So by all means, let's get some of these lesser guys to use as shock troops. But I mean, obviously, I don't think that that's how the Eldar are thinking about it. Um, nor is it, nor is it seems that there's any shame in seeking out allies in the war against Morgoth. Um, but 
you're right. I mean, I think you make a really important point about the, I guess, increased mutuality of this uh, of this exchange of this interaction between the elves and the humans. And I think that we can see it uh, in two ways. Um, uh, Joe, you make an excellent point. The men are searching for something, right? And when they find the land of the Eldar, at least some of them argue that they have found it, that this is what they were looking for. Now, what they were really looking for seems to be out in the West, but but this is this seems to be as close as they can actually get. Um, now, it turns out that it's not, you know, a peaceful paradise without fear or danger that they find. In fact, it's arguably... Uh, you know the worst place on the front lines of this of this confrontation, but but at the same time, this seems to be you know there there's there is a role that they can play and good that they can do there. Um, again, this is what the elf friends argue about that. But again, Joe, you're important. You're, the important point there, as you say, they're seeking for something. They're not just minding their own business by the shores of Quivien and um, and being invited out of that place which they weren't necessarily seeking. Remember, they had to be convinced. We had to take the ambassadors back to Valinor and then bring them back um, and say hey, and convince everybody, no, really, you want to leave Quivianon and come with us. Um, so, uh, so that is a different situation. And also the fact that there is this kind of need. I mean, the, the, with the two of them, with, with, with elves and, and, and men meeting, it is much more like uh, two two groups coming together rather than one stepping down uh, from above for the other. Um, even though, again, the parallels do suggest that. And Laura, I agree with the language that you used before when you called it, uh, when you compared it to a parental relationship. There does seem to be something. It's like a little bit more. It's not quite parental, but it's also a little bit more than big sibling, too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that you're, I, I, that that does seem to me uh, that does seem to me right. Yes, yes. The elves are in loco parentis, as you say. Um, uh, yeah, Dave, go ahead. Okay. Um, I want to offer a point counterpoint. Um, my point in favor uh, that I'm um, I'm I'm giving voice to Jason's point since his mic's not working is uh, he points out that in general in Tolkien all men who are uh, elf friends are good and I I wonder if that's true the vice versa is true it seems to be true that all good men are also elf friends so um, certainly if we look at uh, like sort of later Tolkien stuff and apply it backward it seems like men associating with elves is typically good for men um, I would my two counterpoints against would be um, one the fact that um, I think it's Felagund sort of at one point sort of realizes that that maybe men and elves shouldn't be living together and he gives men their own lands and lets them have their own leaders and march under their own banners and they still let you know the young men come and serve but the men live separately and have their own lives um, my other counterpoint is that on the while while you know maybe associating with elves in general is good uh, certainly associating with the Noldor might be dangerous um, uh, because after all they, they go out of their way to point out at the end of this chapter that <clears throat> all of these um, all of the the particular men that they enumerate get roped into the curse of the Noldor and they get involved in great deeds but many of them end up suffering horrible ends so uh, I wouldn't say it's uh, unequivocally good yeah yeah well I mean okay let's see taking the taking your points one at a time here 
I do agree. I mean, you know, I, I sort of think back to some of the comments we were making when we were looking at the arrival of the Noldor, and we were looking especially at the way they interacted with the Sindar, and that it seemed to be a good thing when the two of them joined together. You know, we were sort of pointing to Turgon and his wisdom and him as sort of the positive example with, you know, others like, like Thingol and the, and the Sons of Feanor on the other side. You know, and community and even reaching out across barriers to form community seems to be, or not necessarily barriers, but boundaries anyway, um, seems to be a good thing. Um, and I certainly do agree there is an obvious, I mean, I'm trying to think of negative examples, like people who got men who were elf friends and also bad. I mean, that doesn't seem, I mean, there are, you know, there are those who, it's not like, you know, all elf friends are perfect, but, um, but generally that does seem to be a pretty good thing. Um, Laura points out that, uh, uh, the Rohirrim weren't elf friends, which is true. And we see that they're even suspicious. You know, we know that, uh, not only, um, not only Wormtongue, but, uh, but even Aemir speak, uh, slightingly of yeah of of uh, of Galadriel in ignorance um so it certainly it does seem to be that there are pe- you know like, certainly there are men who are not elf friends and who are also good um even uh even Butterbur could be called that for instance um not an elf friend but good however um you know i i do think Ah, see now, Laura comes up with another interesting example here, the Master of Lake Town. You know, I'm not sure I'd call the Master of Lake Town an elf friend. He's like an elf negotiator. Uh, but I'm not sure he's exactly an elf friend. He has negotiated, you know, he he works in harmony with the elves. That is, I mean, they have treaties and trade agreements and stuff like that. Um, but I'm not sure I'd call him an elf friend, at least not in the... Uh, not in the sense in which we see people like, you know, Hador and Beor uh, being elf friends. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but um, but yeah, I mean, I think sort of working backwards to the larger uh, point, Dave, that you were making, that or that Jason was making through you, um, that I that it doesn't seem... Uh, and this, you know, in part also goes back to what Joe was saying, too, that even in some sense, the very self-interest of the invitation, well, not self-interest exactly, but, um, you know, there was a desire to reach out to them. The elves, you know, needed and benefited from the humans in ways that the Valar didn't exactly. But again, they're in such a different position. You can't exactly, um, you can't exactly make the... Uh, um, they're parallel, but they're not identical. Um, because although the elves are seem to be in some sense above humans, they're not orders of magnitude above humans like like the Valar are. But um, anyway, so so I think that that's that. Those are definitely good points. Other thoughts on the parallels there? Go see, uh, Joe. You had a point before that I wanted to, because I don't want to overlook the fact, um, which seems to me very significant, the. Um, that the 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 role of song in singing there at in this first encounter um and Joe, i think you had something that you had wanted to say about that all right well what it was is uh i was wondering if you could somehow draw a parallel of feligan awaken the men to the music of the einar i mean um i know ever really made everything be but i wonder if you can make a connection especially with him bringing images before the men's eyes and uh just kind of like how uh 
the Einor saw everything before it really was. I mean, they saw what it could have been. And, uh, I just thought it was an interesting parallel. It wasn't exactly the same, but I just thought it, 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 there was a connection that could be drawn there. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I agree. And I mean, in the, we're, we're even recalled explicitly to it because the making of Arda is one of the things that he sings about. Um, and it's just worth reading a little bit here. Um, it's the bottom of 140 to the top of 141. It's the fourth paragraph of the chapter. Um, okay, fifth. Fifth paragraph of the chapter. Um, let's see. Uh, now men awoke and listened to Felagund as he harped and sang, and each thought he was in some fair dream, until he saw that his fellows were awake also beside him. But they did not speak or stir while Felagund still played, because of the beauty of the music and the wonder of the song. Wisdom was in the words of the elven king, and the hearts grew wiser that hearkened to him. For, for the things of which he sang, of the making of Arda, and the bliss of Amon beyond the shadows of the sea, came as clear visions before their eyes, and his elvish speech was interpreted in each mind according to its measure. Um, and, uh, I mean, Joe, I think you're right. I mean, I think that there are definitely parallels that we can see. We should remember, of course... The music that the Ainur played, and then the vision of the music when you know when when Eru says to them, "Behold your minstrelsy," right, and he gives them the vision and shows them, "Here's what you just sang," and so we can see kind of both of these things happening at once. And of course, it's it's the making of Arda and the bliss of Amon and and the Valar themselves. Um, that uh, um, anyway, that that you know that that's that that he's singing about. So so that that's definitely that's definitely there now. Now what do we do with that? Um, where do we go? Where do we go with that connection? This is certainly, um, on the one hand, I mean, the the way that the men react to it is to name him gnome. That is wisdom. That is, they can see this is a person who has wisdom. They don't know anything about how the world was made or anything like that. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, they are simply astounded at, um, you know, the fact that he knows all this stuff. Um, but obviously there's sort of more than just that. Uh, Dave, what do you think? I was going to point something out that's sort of taking this in a slightly different direction. Um, I just thought the, I wanted to connect this to, um, rather than previous history, later history, connect it to Lord of the Rings again. Um, this reminds me, for some reason, the debate over whether it's good for the men to go respond to the elves' request or not reminds me of um, the debate between Aragorn and Boromir about Lothlorien, where Boromir says... No man uh, um, emerges from Lothlorien unscathed. And Aragorn says, say not unscathed, unchanged perhaps. And I just thought that was, that. It, this reminds me of that. And it reminds me of a lot of the sort of hobbit um, point of view descriptions of elves and how elves can create images, imagery in our minds, that their songs are more than just songs, that they're almost like sorcery, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And certainly um, that, you know, thinking of Aragorn's vocabulary there, that would be one way to frame the question we were asking earlier, right? To, um, certainly there is change. At the very least, the Adain are changed. Um, they don't emerge from the first age unchanged. The question is, do they emerge unscathed? Now, obviously, they're going to get scathed. I mean, they're going to be damaged uh, in the wars. But is it... But is it harmful? Are they better off? You know, uh, how how exactly um, do we think about that? You know, so that's I think I think uh, um, 
a really interesting way to think about it. And of course, Arag- the, the implication of what Aragorn says is that it's not damaging, that to, to, to go into Lothlorien, to go to, you know, to encounter the elves, to become an elf friend, um, as he has done. And of course, you know, thinking of that same moment in the Fellowship of the Ring, um, knowing what we come to know later on, that is knowing what we know after we've read the appendices, Aragorn uh, has some very personal memories here. Um, he was very much changed by his own visit to Lothlorien in the past, because it was during a visit to Lothlorien that he and Arwen essentially became engaged. They had their first conversation in Rivendell, but it wasn't until they met in Lothlorien that uh, you know they really agreed um, to. Uh, um, you know, to, 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 to wait for each other and to join together. So, um, so certainly he is so, he knows how impactful it can be and how much it can change you though. Obviously he doesn't look at that as a negative thing. Um, and uh, somebody, Joe, you mentioned uh, uh, in the text that the highest house of men, the house of Haldor, seems to experience the most tragedy, and that is certainly true. But that seems to all go along together with uh, with with all. It seems to be a part uh, of this overall picture uh, in some way. Uh, Laura, you wanted to add something here. I was just rereading that passage where um, where Finrod is is singing to them and. Uh, I just want to read it again real quick. Wisdom was in the words of the elven king, and the hearts grew wiser that hearkened to him. For the things of which he sang, of the making of Arda, and the bliss of Amon beyond the shadows of the sea, came as clear visions before their eyes, and his elvish speech was interpreted in each mind according to its measure. And to me it almost seems like, almost like a a, a religious, um, like what a prophet would say. You know, a um, I, I just can't think of the word, um, but um, almost as if it, you know, if they had had language, they could have written this down, and this could have been, you know, the 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 early Bible for right. men. It's it's almost right. like a right. um, it's like revelation, right? Revelation is the word I'm trying to think of. Yes, it's like it's like revelation. So in that way, it's it's kind of connected to the to the music. I think the the uh, the original music and kind of that spiritual dimension, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, and uh, and I think that we can see. Um, th- I mean, and I, I think that is an interesting way to think about its connection back to the music as well, because of course we remember from the Ainu Lindelay that the the Ainur were each of them sort of invested with part of the mind of Iluvatar, and each one of them was therefore, although they were singing their own song and making their own music, they were expressing that part of the mind of Iluvatar that was in them. So um, that was in its way revelatory as well. And um, the way in which, one of the ways in which the creation that results from the music of the Ainur is on the one hand their own artistic sub-creation, but also Iluvatar's cre- creation, that is, it is the the uh, offspring of the child, of uh, of the thoughts of Iluvatar as well. Um, and I think, so So thinking about the music in that sense, and uh, uh, Feligan's music functioning that way um, for the men, that this is, it's only an echo. I mean, this, he's just singing about, he's just singing, singing about the making of Arda. It's not like he's singing the making of Arda. Um, but uh, but still, I think that we can see that you know this is this is a couple steps removed, but a similar kind of species of 
revelation, I, I, I think. And, and certainly I agree, the kind of reverence that they have for it. And they recognize it right away. Notice nobody is, responds to this and they're like, oh, you know, what a load of hooey this is. Who is this guy? I mean, they all, they all recognize him and not only recognize him, but love him, as they say later on in that same paragraph. Um, and they are, and they took him for their lord, and were ever after loyal to the house of Finarfin. Um And I think that you know, that, again, that that service that we were talking about earlier just seems to go hand in hand with it. Joe, go ahead. All right. Well, uh, back at the beginning and everything, didn't it say that uh, that was I don't know if it was all the children of Luvatar or just men could act like outside of the music, kind of. I mean, did, did it say that men were the only ones that could do that in the beginning? Or? Well, it, it, there was that passage where it was talking about sort of the unusual freedom of men, um, which you like are they're right not really. Recall. I know everyone has free will, but they're not really like as restricted to the music. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it talks about their gift of freedom. Yeah. Well, yeah, just I thought that connected with how she said, you know, each of them made made of it like what they would. I mean, you know, when the men were hearing it, and uh, that's that could that, that reminded me of how men could kind of do their own thing more so than other people that uh they weren't set so much on as straight of a path even though everyone has free will i don't know that just it reminded me of that yeah no that's interesting uh you're, you know the, and and uh his elvish speech was interpreted in each mind according to its measure yeah yeah no that's interesting um uh yeah yeah no that's that's uh that's that's definitely a good uh a good thought there, and I'm not sure what to do here with the freedom of the men that we can see. Um, certainly, with uh, with Holith, who is who is uppity in some good ways and in some not so good ways, um, we can see her independence and uh, you know what what uh, we were told back in the Ainuindoe that you know men are sometimes a grief to Manway, and uh, that you know they use this freedom that they have this independence. Um, but again, I think that that's kind of the 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 other side uh, of the of the coin. You know, again, to me, I I put, you know, Halith sort of poised against Hador. I mean, the two of them seem to me, because they they are the two. Um, the the two who you know whose names are going to be given. I mean the people the people of they're going to be called the people of Haleth, uh from now on, and uh, the house of Hador Goldenhead is going to be you know he's going to be the name even though they are you know descended from the people of Marach. Um, it's not going to be Marach whose name is going to be kept on. It's going to be Hador who who is you know the head of that house and the house of Hador um, is going to be talked about for the rest of the Silmarillion too. So those are are the really the you know in in my mind kind of these two iconic. Uh, uh, leader figures among the humans, the one of which shows the kind of independent spirit, um, this uh, sort of extra free will, <laughs> Joe, that you reminded us of, uh, that, that that the humans have. They can shape their own ends, um, not always for the best, um, but they can shape them. Or they can choose of their own free will, as Hador does, um, to, you know, not assert that independence and instead uh, to... Uh, to 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 serve as of course Beor and his people um, choose to do as we see here in this passage. Um, Beor certainly seems to be more on the Hador side of the equation than the Haleth side of the equation. Um, but uh, since I've uh, since I've mentioned that, uh, John, did you, did you want to talk about uh, Felagund and Beor? I think I would like to bring up um, first of all that. Of all the connections we see between men and elves, you know, 
it appears that this, as you've pointed out in the past, seems to be almost very emblematic. You know, how symbolic it seems that um, Beor, um, as he is called, means basically vassal, and is basically his people's tongue, which indicates at first, and from the foremost, that we see him, and clearly the role as basically the pupil or student of Felicon. And while it is not explicitly stated, um, I kind of get this mental image. Um, in my head, um, when basically Feligund is basically singing the song, that it is Beor who heeds it first, basically being the leader of the, the band of those around the fire. Now, recently, I was listening to um, a very rare recording of uh, the Shaping of Middle-Earth, the volume of the History of Middle-Earth series. And in the volume, I heard a passage where um, Feanor first meets the, the orcs, and um, he comes, finally, to uh, Middle-Earth, right? And he sees a campfire in the distance, and he makes for it. And he sees the orcs, he, he doesn't know what to make of them. And basically, he runs out there, and he screams, you know, you know, behold, I, you know, the grandson of Finway hath come, you know, fly before the arrows of the Noldor, you know. And, well, I mean, that's a paraphrase of the quote, of course. Um, now, of course, Feligan, his approach is quite humble. I mean, you know, it is not like he's going in there, you know, being the kind of guy he is. And he's not, like, you know, persecuting or basically going in there under the immediate air of command. What he's doing is he's just chilling there with his harp. And what's interesting is, you know, we've discussed, of course, um, with close detail, um, and I don't mean to sound redundant at all, about, you know, the music of um, Felagund. And I couldn't help but remember, not only in the music of the Ainur, but also later on when... Um, when finally Mithros was uh, rescued, basically, and, you know, of course, um, basically, you know, the house of Felagun basically um, you know, played its part in trying to ensure Mithros escaped, though Felagun was not the chief instrument, as we, you know, of course, know. Now, returning to Beor, um, what we do see also here, as you've said, is an outlook among the, um, you know, the princes of the Adain, not yet princes at this point, accepting fully the words, or not, well, the, the song of Felagun and the advice of Felagun. There is, you know, we don't really get from Beord the infringement that we see, let's say, between Marach and the other bands and the companies which are basically out there trying to find the western, the western road um, to find, you know, the, the light in the west. And I find it very interesting. You know, it isn't, we don't see, of course, men reacting immediately in such a manner, which shows that they are com completely, um, you know, against or in opposition to the elves. And it, there are not all these, you know, characteristics which are exactly compatible. They are considered <coughs> by some of the people of Felagund as has been uh, either previously mentioned or shall be soon as the unfriends. You know, they're cutting down trees, they're basically killing livestock, uh, something which is not very elf-like, per se. And yet, Felgen, on the outset, does not take this necessarily as a bad thing. His people do, but he doesn't. And he embraces, um, out of all the Noldor, being the first to find, you know, mankind, them into um, his service, which I think, you know, we've been looking at it in multiple views. But clearly, Tolkien definitely met this as, I think, at that point, you know, a moment of generosity. These are people who have long been on the road. And the resurrection from basically mankind being a wandering people to that of high princes, as has been 
compared to the elves on the long march to Amman is basically quite prevalent because, of course, um, we see basically their westerly road being halted as well, which is kind of what the Sindar do, but it's not portrayed as a negative point. You know, them, them actually stopping and not going to Amman is just simply realistic. They will not be able to go to the Blessed Realm. I mean, that's, that's just not their fate. Their fate is beyond the circles of the world. Um, and of course, you know, just to give another opposite view, though, we hear, and I don't mean to jump ahead at all or to ramble, but in the Children of Hurin, we see Sador, uh, Labadal, Popperfoot, telling Hurin, basically, as a, as a boy, you know, the, the fact that this service has been taken as emblematic by Beor and his vassalship, also kind of shows man reaching high, loftier than basically the station which they were originally born into. And when they were basically born into this lofty station, there's always the chance of falling. And I think that is basically just a con, but not necessarily, um, you know, a completely negative view uh, beyond the fact that it is merely just a consequence, a consequence of, um, you know, what is, you know, currently taking place as a result of Bayor's decision. So Bayor, I think, acts as basically the first counselor, mediator, and lord of the Adai. Yeah, no, I so. think that uh, thinking of uh, your comments, um, uh, certainly about uh, uh, um, yeah. Labadal uh, in uh, the uh, Children uh, of Hurin there, um, you know, that, of course, yeah. I want to be careful of because the, the Children of Hurin... Of is course, a, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, it's a little bit yeah. different. But but still, well, I, you're right course, about yeah, yeah. The, the possibility of fall. Um, and certainly, it you know, though we don't get... One thing that I think is interesting, though, this is, in a sense, kind of jumping ahead too. We don't... Um, although though we have all of these parallels, we don't get exactly... Real, we don't really get a Feanor figure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I mean, Turin is the only thing we're going to get that's right. sort of close to it, uh, to a fall in that way. But we should uh, that that we should say for, of course, oh, the Turin discussion. Mean, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll 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 do I mean, a couple you know, weeks I mean, on Turin. The thing with Turin here, um, it's great foreshadowing, but we have to be, of course, cautious, you know, not to go too far. But on the other hand, we do see that um, the whole fact that in the beginning, Beor, his point of view and his way of addressing Pelagun, um, you know, in, in the manner which he does, I think is quite unique. Because what it does show on the, the outset, apparently, is basically the nature of mankind. Mankind isn't basically necessarily in, you know, Tolkien's you know, depiction as basically being as ragged as the Avadi, and yet are basically the students of basically the, the wandering Dark Elves, and they, they have some nobility, but their nobility is chiefly derived from the connection, as basically shown by Pelagun's um, which, of course, appears as, you know, the first real union, the first real friendship between man and elf. And, you know, we even, I don't mean to, you know, to keep everyone waiting here, but with the death of Beor, we also see the introduction of the doom of man, or the gift of Illuvatar, which is depicted in certain terms, which, I mean, are, are very new and very um, applicable from the elven point of view, this being supposedly, you know, from Tolkien's mythology, of course, an elven document being some and this is one point where Beor acts immediately, I mean, right off the bat, as not only an introduction to basically mankind, but an introduction to elvish standpoints on mankind. I mean, we saw, of course, a passage earlier 
remember it was like the three-page document, um, not document, it was like a chapter, it was on men after the rising of the sun. And we got some of that elvish perspective. But here, here, it's basically seen through the eyes of Felicum. Like, right, right away, this isn't told in some kind of overarching um, narrative where, you know, we are only quickly glancing over events from a bird's eye view. This is very much from Felicum's or from a people of Felicum's point of view or later on, people of his house or other elves. So I, I didn't mean to butt in. Um, um, but you yeah, know, just something which I, I noticed. Yeah, no, no, no. That's a really good point. Um, that um, and 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 I do love both. So there's there there are two moments that really jump out to me as as giving us that kind of insight. Um, the second one is the death of Beor, as you say, when you know uh, Finrod and all the rest of the elves are like, "Whoa, look at that! He's like not even sad. Nobody stabbed him. He's just He's just, just up and died." <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you almost get this sense that he's like a little tourist attraction there. You know, like, come see the spontaneously dead guy. Um, but at the same time, even before that... They put up a sign. Imagine exactly. Yeah. Hey, come and see there. the corpse. This like, is incredible. Hey, come and see. Great, great. <laughs> but the, but the yeah. second, the, the first yeah. one, that, that's the second one. The first one, which is even, sort of even more understated, I think, is when... Um, when Felagund asks him, so uh, tell me about the birth of mankind. Like, where did you guys wake up? You know, were you next to a lake too? You know, how far away was it? And Beor's like, I have no idea. You know, I mean, like my distant ancestors who did that have been dead for a long time. Um, you know, he says, and, and yeah, he told and, him little, and yeah. indeed he knew and little. Also, not to interrupt, and, but also Sador. Yeah. On, I mean, I, I keep on going to the Shadow of Hurin, but he kind of, he does kind of repeat that same imagery because Hurin asks as a boy, you know, Oh, well, Labadal, what about um, the origins of mankind? You know, is that merely something like, you know, the, the evil breath or, you know, some malady caused by Morgoth? And the answer that is given is, well, you know, sad. was like, I don't know. You know, it's completely beyond me because I think what this shows is, I mean, the reason why I think mankind was introduced earlier and not just right here was to show many generations definitely have passed. This is, you know, the Silmarillion covers hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years of history. Um, the whole basically known history of Arda, um, save for the Fourth Ages and ages beyond. Um, and what's interesting um, is the idea that Beor is basically only the tip of the iceberg of what is probably a very long and unknown story, but he's only the beginning of another story, so it's like, you know, bookends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to go back to an earlier point, um, and I'd be interested here to uh, to hear uh, from some of the rest of you, too. Um, the point that John made about Finrod, uh, that is his, his character, um, as John said, the kind of guy he is, um, which is, I think, a really... Uh, a really important thing this is it is crucial i think that this is that it is it is finrod and not somebody else um uh, uh you know john was pointing out you know for instance how things might have gone differently had it been feanor who had who had come in that night um and finrod is finrod is different um and i think finrod is you know he's he's clearly he is clearly uh you know the 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 fortunate guy the providential figure to arrive in this place at this time um i mean imagine if it had been Karanthir for crying out loud but uh um but certainly 
his his patience and his willing to willingness to reach out. If you think about Finrod, one of the things that really separates Finrod, we were talking uh, before I alluded to our previous conversation about Turgon and the way in which Turgon establishes uh, links, and we see him uh, bringing about the greatest of the unions between Sindar and Noldor within his realm. But Finrod is really the boundary crosser. He's the only guy who is friends with everybody. He 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 goes hunting with the sons of Feanor. You know, he's he he hangs out with the sons of Feanor. He is allowed into Doriath. You know, only there are only a few only the children of Finarfin are allowed into Doriath. Even even uh the children of even Fingolfin and his kids aren't allowed in. Only the only those who are blood kin to Thingol are permitted in. So Finrod can go into into Doriath. He can ha- hang out with the sons of uh, of of Feanor. Of course, he's close to Fingon and and Fingolfin as well. Um, he's friends with the dwarves. He's had he's had dealings with the dwarves. And remember, he's the one who gave them all of those Valinorian gems to make into the Nauglamir, the the necklace of the dwarves. And now he um, establishes uh, establishes connections. Um, with the Mentu, you know, so it sort of seems like, of course, it's logical that he would be the one who would be sort of the Elvish ambassador uh, to uh, to humankind and 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 start this off. Anyway, I think um, that's uh, that's really his contribution, and I love the fact that Finrod's sort of moniker. I mean, the thing that he's called, he's called Finrod the Beloved several times. And we see right away that the men love him. The, 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 the association that he has with, with love and the way, the, the extent to which people love him, I think is, is, is really an important thing to remember. Um, oh, and Laura, you're totally right. Everybody loves Finrod. That is an excellent title suggestion. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so I, I do think that that it is important, and that you know, remember that he notices right away that they're not orcs. Um, and of course, it's hard for me to not think about Treebeard there, right? Um, remember, Treebeard also showed equal patience in uh, and unhastiness in diagnosing that strange visitors that he comes across are not orcs. Um, so, uh, uh, so there's some uh, there's some parallel to that to that as well. Um, but still, I, I think that. Um, you know Finrod, and especially you know with the explicit connection back to back to uh, back to Orome, um, with the fact that he was hunting and everything, um, is uh, is uh, is pretty cool. Um, let's see, Jack, I we had skipped over. I was just realizing that uh, there was a question that you asked that I had wanted to get to a long time ago, and then I just kind of left it behind. And that was your question about their origin, the origin of men in the East, and possible possible connections to 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 genesis yeah um okay origins of men uh shrouded in mystery um we, we've seen the parallels between the the elves journey and the men's journey and uh you and laura went over that and it's all very obvious but where it breaks down is is when you go back to the origins of men they don't have their lake um of awakening uh cuvinian they um they don't have that lake under the stars. Um, and I was wondering, as I was reading this, I was trying to get into the mind of the author, um, was he leaving room for the story of Genesis, um, or the, the biblical account of the origins of men, the Garden of Eden, uh, etc.? And I wonder what your thoughts on that were. And also, um, he even points out, I think he even lends credibility to that, is that he mentions that Morgoth actually snuck out of um, 
his keep and and went over there and, and perhaps played the Satan role. So I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I I have to say basically a resounding yes to the basic question. Does it seem that Tolkien is leaving the door open for Genesis 3 to go on here? I, and I think definitely yes. Um, uh, just to review what we know here, Bayor says, A darkness lies behind us. Um, okay, a darkness lies behind us, and we have turned our backs upon it, and we do not desire to return thither even in thought. Um, so there's something dark behind them. What is it? We don't know. But we know that Morgoth went there personally, as you say, maybe like maybe in serpent form, maybe not, but Morgoth went there personally um, to uh, to check out men in their early beginnings. And then, to me, the most intriguing sentence of all of his dealings with men the eldar indeed knew nothing at that time and learnt but little afterwards but that a darkness lay upon the hearts of men as the shadow of the kinslaying and the doom of mandos lay upon the noldor they perceived clearly even in the people of the elf friends whom they first knew to corrupt or destroy whatsoever arose new and fair was ever the chief desire of morgoth and doubtless he had this purpose in his errand um, by fear and lies to make men the foes of the eldar um that parallel that he that parallel that he makes that is the parallel that uh that 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 tolkien makes between the darkness that lay upon the hearts of men and the shadow of the kinslaying and the doom of mandos uh that lay upon the the noldor seems to me a pretty clear reference to uh original sin there um the curse of mandos has been sounding like original sin to some extent or at least similar to the idea of original sin um for a while especially i think actually the passage that we sort of discussed less than i thought we would um in retrospect um the passage at the end of the Myglin chapter where um this is that there is something crooked in Myglin um and that his love for Idril is sort of taken uh, as evidence of his crookedness, and that people speculate that it was basically a result of the of the doom of Mandos. That that it's 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 part of the it's part of the curse of the Noldor that that is sort of manifesting itself in this crooked desire on his part. Um, anyway, so I I I, I do think. That we can we can see some glimpses of uh, an original sin concept. We know that Morgoth was there personally. We know there's some darkness in the past. We're not given any inf- more information about it because, of course, from where would we get it? Right there. But uh, yeah, Laura, go ahead. Yeah, that that sentence that you read about uh, Morgoth that really struck me too. That we have this question about what happened, and it made me wonder if if. Um, men's uh, tendency to be sickly and to age quickly and all that, um, if that sort of, I'm a, I mean, I wonder if Tolkien was was even thinking upon those lines, um, and that some of that seems to go away a little bit after they come in contact with the elves, their lives are longer, for instance, so uh, uh, that was just a thought that occurred to me, that, that perhaps some of the physical symptoms, the physical sickness that you see men subject to, maybe maybe some of that was part of what went on then with Morgoth. Yeah, possibly. I mean, and that we don't know for sure. I, um, the uh, Yeah, I mean, all we're told about 
you know, what might have happened before, you know, near the beginning of men and what the consequences of it were. Um, you know, all we're told is just about this shadow that lies on their heart um, and which seems to impact them um, and impact their decisions and to manifest itself in their choices and things, just as the curse of Mandos and the and the, the, the doom of, the, you know, the, the, the after effects of the kinslaying are manifested in the choices of the Noldor. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and this is going to be part of the question that is going to be raised. I mean, this is, you know, one of the things, and I think we've talked about it before, I mean, one of the fundamental kind of theological questions that Tolkien's uh, uh, sub-creation here has set up, that is the idea of death is the gift of a Luvatar, um, seems to be in contradiction to the Christian teaching that death is the consequence of sin and that there would not have been death um, had there not been sin. And so therefore it's not part of the initial program, not part of the initial uh, plan uh, for humans by God. That's the traditional idea of the relationship between sin and death. And it's noteworthy because it seems to be one of the only theological things that's really different um, in, in Tolkien's system. Um, Now, this is uh um this is something that Tolkien thought about more as time went on and I think um in the debate between Finrod and Andreth, again Finrod, um that uh that Christopher published in Morgoth's Ring, we can see some later thoughts of Tolkien on this where he voices uh, he gives voice to a human side of this question uh, in the mouth of Andreth, a wise woman uh, of the Adine, who tells Finrod, no, you're wrong. Death was not part of the initial gift of Iluvatar to men, and that's this is not how men are supposed to be. So I think um, I think that's... As I said, this this is this is this is a concept exactly what you know. If there is an original sin to men um, in his world, you know, like what what is it and what are its consequences? This is something that he really uh, um, was working on and thinking about um, throughout his life and kind of refining his approach to. Dave, go ahead. Um, so I've I am remiss and I've never read that conversation between Andreth and Finrod. Do they is any light shed there upon what actually happened uh, and how much of it is, uh, um, you know, what something Morgoth did to them versus uh, what the men did or or what Morgoth's role was in it tonight. And Laura's yelling at me in the text for not having read this. I'm sorry, Laura. <laughs> just haven't done it yet. Um, yeah, it definitely is. It definitely is worth reading. Um, not exactly because I, I mean to some extent, but I mean she she's still human too. So she all she has from the past is she has rumors. I mean she says more than Beor does, or you know than we get about what Beor said here in this passage. But it's not like she knows exactly what happened. Um, what she talks about is that you know when Finrod is talking with her about the mortality of humans and how you know they seem just to be visitors or guests here and remember some of those names that were given for men by elves earlier on in the in the previous in the in the earlier chapter um you know the aftercomers the sickly remember all that stuff um and so Finrod is talking about that like you know yeah to us you guys look like you don't even you don't even really belong here and and this is not this is not your home and whatever um and she's and she is pretty emphatic in saying 
that's not how it always was. This is not that was not the original conception. This is a con, you know, that that is a consequence. Um, we were not, in fact, meant to die. Um, anyway, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, try to recap the whole thing. Um, but she doesn't give detailed specifics because, again, I mean, she doesn't know. But well, what I'm curious about is so I, this must be one of those things that Tolkien either um, hadn't fully made his mind up about, or maybe was changing his mind about later. But I mean, it seems pretty clear from from the sort of published Silmarillion stuff in a lot of his letters that he really that this is the qualitative difference between men and elves. Maybe not the sickliness and other things, but death um, is a gift from from um, uh, Iluvatar to men, and that this is a qualitative difference. That otherwise men are pretty much just elves who die, you know. And 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 it turns out to be that. Of course, I guess there is that one letter he has where with the priest where the priest says death is not a gift it's a punishment and and Tolkien says yes but even punishments from god are gifts so so right. maybe there's room for both interpretations but um, yeah it seems like there's a very interesting tension uh going on over this no i definitely i definitely think so um and this is what in my mind what makes that um that piece, the debate between Finrod and Andreth, so sublime, is where he takes this in the end. Um, the uh, the 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 sort of the final place where, as both of them, um, in their kind of going back and forth and giving the human perspective on things and the elven perspective on things, um, and where they arrive to, which is not either one of those things, but both of them learning new uh, sort of a new perspective and coming to an understanding of how the whole system works and both of their places, uh, you know, both of them learning more about their own natures and their own places in the larger scheme. Um, it's, uh, it's really, it's really pretty amazing. So, um, so yeah, I, said, I don't want, I don't want to just kind of diverge into, into, into just summarizing that, um, entirely, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's, um, I certainly think you're right, Dave, to point to attention there. Um, and I think that it is a really important tension, and certainly there's no removing the fact that death, certainly through the Silmarillion, death is the defining element of 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 humans, as you say. It is the primary difference um, between elves and men is 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 mortality and all of the consequences of that, because it does have consequences. Um, it makes them look at things differently. It makes them live their lives differently. It it makes the, you know their whole relate the relationship to the world, their relationship to each other, their relationship to the elves, their relationship to God. All of these things are very different from those of elves um, because of that because of that difference of mortality. Um, okay, uh, let's see. Let's see, and I think Dave, you had wanted to talk before about. Um, oh, actually, wait, 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 um, Matt. I want to come back to a, a question that you, something that you had typed way back. Actually, I think last week uh, you typed this about Felagund uh, uh, doing another yada 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 here um, in his description of the bliss of Amon with the elves. Um, did you wanna uh did you wanna comment on that? Uh sure, I I'll, I'll do that. Um yeah, I mean it just it just seems it seems to be a recurring pattern that any time they refer back to um um you know 
before they came back, they they never talk about the bad stuff. They only talk about, you know, it's it was really great over there and everything, you know, and they kind of gloss over all the bad things that's happened. Uh, and and uh, I just think that's interesting that, uh, you know, when they, they relate their story that they don't, they don't seem to talk about these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes me, uh, you know, since... Uh... Um, since since yesterday on Facebook was Monty Python quotation day, I, I you know I have that in my head. It makes me think of you know, let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. Um, yeah, it, you know, like they're 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 willing to let bygones be bygones. You know, why should we dwell on the unpleasant things? Um, let's just let's just think about let's think about the good parts. Um. You know, yeah, Damon Damon is pretty awesome, really all things considered, and uh the elves are really are really glorious. Um so but yeah, you know. But now here this is different. I would say that there's a there's a pretty big difference between um between Felagund not harping or not harping on uh, uh, unintended pun there, um, him not explaining about the dark and checkered past of the Noldor to the men here, and um, nobody's mentioning the kinslaying uh, to Thingol, which you know you can see why Thingol's kind of upset about this. Like, oh yeah, remember you know your own people, the ones that you were king of. Yeah, we kind of slaughtered a whole lot of them. Um, you know that's um, that's pretty that's pretty clear. Uh, pretty clear why he would be offended by that or upset about that. One could argue, I guess, you know, for the men, it's not really their business, right? Um, they don't do. do they do. They really need to know. This is this is this is an internal affair, you know. Is this is this really something that they have to know? And I don't think it's necessarily covered over. I mean, I don't think. Uh, I don't think that the. Um, I don't think that we're supposed to understand that the men never find this out. That like to them, the kinslaying is is in fact a mystery in the same way that it was a mystery uh, to Thingol for a long time. Um, and I think you know it's certainly the initial story. You know what we hear from uh, from Felgen, what we hear Felgen singing to them about, seems to me a a, a fine a, you know a fine like, you know to, to, an emphasis on. On, on joy and harmony and, you know, Finrod kinds of things rather than tragedy. But, but it might temper their uh, overall feeling that the, the elves are totally awesome and have no flaws. Yeah, sure, I suppose so. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, it might not be uh, the thing you want to put first in your recruitment speech for allies, right? Come join the Noldor who, you know, stab their friends and allies in the back and butcher anybody who gets in their way. Um, not a not an awesome recruitment strategy, I think. Um so no, I mean I certainly I certainly agree with that. Though notice it's it's interesting even when we get to the internal debates among the men uh and the some men who are wanting to um uh the some men who are skeptical and 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 wanting to turn away they don't bring that up. You know, they're not like look these these uh these elves are a piece of work, you know, they 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 just, you know, they they don't have their stuff together at all and can't be trusted. Um that's not that's not the direction they go. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yes. I think that that's, um, so yeah, I mean, is, is it because they're ignorant? Possibly, I guess, possibly. Um, 
but uh but based on what men we you know when when we when we see men interacting with them before you know i don't get the impression that they're that they're living in ignorance for you know it permanently anyway um okay let's see uh dave i want to go back to your um you were talking i think about Halith's pride before and i think if i remember correctly uh that uh in the text chat before jordan was yelling at me for criticizing a strong female character as being uppity totally unfair i should say by the way um it is not because she is a strong female character that Halith is uppity I, I say uppity only because she, like, doesn't take anything from anybody, including advice or, like, pleas from her people. Please don't make us walk through the Valley of Terror. Um, we just want to live contentedly where we are, and Halith is having none of it. Um, but anyway, Dave, you had thoughts about Halith's pride? Uh, yeah, sure. We were, we were actually last week when we postponed this episode. We had night, we had a brief debate in the uh, chat room on uh, my Middle Earth about her pride, and and we were sort of saying there's there's a general sort of feeling of why did she not take Carnthier up on his offer? Why did she insist on going west? And that seemed like kind of a not particularly good or wise decision. Wouldn't have been better to stay. And we were sort of just trying to figure out if is this sort of bad pride or good pride and and. Um, what were her reasons for not wanting to stay good? Uh, she's a very interesting character. I, so this is like only tangentially related, but I, I particularly love um, her quote that she sends back to Thingle. Um, uh, I'm going to read it now just because yeah, I feel yeah. like it because I love it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so Thingle says, all right, fine, I guess they can stay there even though that's my land, but only as long as, you know, you guys don't, uh, don't, don't, don't let the orcs come in here. And Halith says, uh, to this Halith answered, Where are Haldod, my father, and Haldar, my brother? If the king of Doriath fears a friendship between Haleth and those who have devoured her kin, then the thoughts of the Eldar are strange to men. And I just, I love that quote. That's like one of my favorite Silmarillion quotes ever, because she <laughs> really puts him in his place. It's just kind of, you know... <laughs> So yeah. very very odd suggestion, Thingol. The idea that she would uh, tolerate the orcs after they butchered her family. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know, it is such a it is such a wonderful comeback because of course what she's saying is exactly right. Though she's turning it back at him, right? Um, you know, then the thoughts of the elder are strange to men. You've just, you know, by asking this question, by, you know, by saying this to us, oh, like, make sure that you don't let the orcs in, make sure that you don't become allies with the orcs. Um, you know, she's basically saying, look, by even saying that, you are implying that you believe that the thoughts of the Edain are strange to you. You wouldn't act that way. Why would you even suspect? Why would you even entertain the idea that we would do that? Um, if you think we would do that, then your thoughts are the strange ones, not ours. Um, in other words, what she, you know, one of the things that she seems to be saying here is, look, you know, we're 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 not that we're not as weird as you think we are. We are not as unlike you as we think as you think we are um and thingol clearly is really distancing himself um you know he is like the anti finrod um you know in this chapter and in other places uh, if <laughs> finrod is the beloved thingol is not and um 
and he is certainly setting himself aside from men and uh I, I, looking down his nose is too gentle a way to put it um but uh his yeah i i think that howitt's response to him um is not only as you say extremely cool but i think very appropriately um i think it's it's still very appropriately drawing attention to not only what's good about her, but what's uh, questionable about Thingol. Well, she seems to be the first of many um, um, men who, and she's not even a man, she's a woman, the first of many human beings in this book who put him in his place or show him to be a fool or or make him eat his words. Um, uh, you know, Baron being like the most obvious one, but he seems yeah. to have a really bad track record with women, with uh, with human beings. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, he he does not really. Um, um, yeah, he does not really do a very good job of <laughs> relating to other people and understanding other people. And even when he becomes sort of more, uh, more benevolent, I guess, um, that is in his attitude towards men, when he comes to accept men later on, he still seems a little on the clueless side, but, uh, we'll get to that later on, um, Anyway, there's a there's a sort of a spontaneous disagreement breaking out here uh, in the text about her leadership. Um, let's go ahead and talk about that. Um, if you guys want to debate with each other, you can debate. You can debate with each other aloud. Is Holith a good leader or not? What do you think? I'm jumping in first. <laughs> <laughs> I I so Laura and believe it or not, Laura and I were the ones debating this last week. I. Laura seems to, to read this as her being portrayed in a bad light, and I don't see that at all. Whenever I read through this chapter, my lasting impression of her is that she's uh, pretty, she's awesome. She's a kick-butt leader. I mean, she makes certain questionable decisions, but and maybe this says more about me than it does about the, the character of the book, but I read her as, you know, maybe a little foolhardy, maybe headstrong, but but determined and strong and and willful and um, I think she's a great leader. Maybe I don't agree with all her decisions necessarily, but I I I think she's a great character. I don't find her portrayal to be negative at all. Well, I don't think she's entirely negative, but I think she makes some really bad decisions. You know, I have to if I'm going to put a moral judgment on him, I'd say the decision to to uh, move all our people westward when they don't want to through a very perilous uh, journey, losing quite a few of them in the process. I'd say that that was a, a selfish decision. And I think of all the uh, female leaders that, uh, that Tolkien portrays, Galadriel and to a certain extent um, Eowyn, uh, don't, get, don't get portrayed in, in quite... I mean, I'm not saying she's portrayed in an overwhelmingly negative light, but she's not, she's portrayed as being more human, I think, than the other. She's not this idealistic goddess who does everything right. Really, Eowyn? So, you think Eowyn's a more positive portrayal? I mean, she's well, I do think so in her leadership capacity. She when she leads the people, she doesn't do anything to put them at risk, mm-hmm. like like uh, Halleth does. So I think that's the 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 difference there that's the thing that i'm that i'm pulling out of that is that Hallis was not the greatest leader <laughs> she does endanger her people yeah so, i uh, mean fair enough yeah and just to read that passage a little bit i think i could just yeah i want to sort of tie this down to the text and you guys can go ahead again um 
see, she wants to go through the uh, through uh, north of Doriath. That land was even then not yet so evil as it after became, but it was no road for mortal men to take without aid, and Haleth only brought her people through it with hardship and loss, constraining them to go forward by the strength of her will. At last they crossed over the Brithiac, and many bitterly repented of their journey, but there was now no returning. And we're told, but then to do justice to it in a couple more sentences, but there were many who loved the Lady Haleth, and wished to go whither she would and dwell under her rule, and these she led into the forest of Brethil between Taglin and Syrian. Thither in the evil days that followed, many of her scattered folk returned. Okay, go ahead. Mm. Well, I just think that it's just a more realistic portrait. I think one of the things Tolkien has been criticized for is having this portrayal of women as these unbelievably good people who never do anything wrong. Um, uh, Aon, you know, is flawed, but she's still she's still she's still pretty good. Um, I, I think Halith really comes comes the closest to being. Uh, a portrait of a, a female leader who's not just just somebody to be looked up to all the time. Though she is clearly beyond normal people. I mean, like, constrain them to go forward by the strength of her will. She is certainly a larger-than-life figure um, in her stature mm-hmm. and in her power and even in, you know, the, in her leadership and how much they love her. Um, she is not just like a regular person, but I certainly no. agree with with her fallibility. She is not she is not idealized, and certainly she's not idealized in you know a woman on a pedestal kind of way. Certainly, um, <laughs> did you see what Mike typed in the chat room? <laughs> he said <laughs> they don't put her on a pedestal; they put her in a mound. <laughs> right, that's right. She she gets a hero mound. You know, that's with a name, several names. <laughs> So exactly. I, a, I think those are fair points. That, that she's obviously not a well. It's really hard to know what's going on. Like it's hard to interpret. She wanted to lead her people westward, and even though most of them were against this council, she took them forth. I mean, does that mean she forced them to go, or does that mean that they were sort of not convinced, but said, "But hey, you're our leader, so we'll go with you." Like, um, um, and maybe. You know, maybe she's not demonstrating the best of judgment, and certainly the uh, the passage through what the what the heck is it called the the really awful place she um, the 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 land sort of between the mountains of Terra and the Girdle of Melian. It's like you know, obviously, maybe should have at least picked a better path, but um, I, I still like on the whole, I I don't think her. So maybe she is a she's a more interesting and maybe a slightly more ah, God. I'm gonna. I was about to to say less two dimensional than say Arwen or Gladriel, which is just an awful thing to say and liable to get me, you know, pilloried. But maybe she's a she's a little like she's a little more flawed than some of those characters are. At least the way they're portrayed in the Lord of the Rings. And we have to be careful because that's the Hobbit perception of her, and here we get the Elven perception of Haleth. But so maybe she's a little more flawed, but um, I don't know. I don't. I don't find this to be a particular. Like I. I don't know. When I read this, I don't sit there and think, you know, oh, man, Haleth, what the heck are you thinking? What a horrible decision. I sort of read it and I think, well, that's unfortunate and maybe not the best choice, but it, she still seems like a really awesome leader and hero and whatnot. I agree, you know, and you think about the, the, I mean, when I was talking about her earlier and kind of wanting to put her not exactly on the opposite pole from Hador, but certainly very different in that what she does, 
she does independently. I mean, they, they are all about... Um, they are all about, that is, the people of Haleth are all about keeping to themselves. I mean, the first thing we're told about them is they don't even have uh, initially any centralized leadership and they all live in independent homesteads. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, they as a people are the only ones of the three major groups of people. They're the only ones who keep themselves independent um, of elvish rule. Now, like they are sort of theoretically under Thingol because they're living in a part of the forest which is technically part of Doriath, but um, but they are not vassals, really, to anybody. Um, and so, therefore, I was putting her on the opposite pole from Hador and suggesting, therefore, um, since I was suggesting that Hador's position was a good one, um, that hers is bad, and it is certainly proud. She is certainly she certainly does have pride, uh, in the sense, you know, in, in I think a not good sense, um, in that generally that keeping oneself to oneself usually is not a good thing. I mean, if you think about it. They're like the mirror image of Aeol over there. I mean, they're like uh, the forest on the other side of Doriath from from Aeol. And we were looking last time at uh, you know Aeol moving off on, on on his own and 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 wanting to be independent and set up his own little kingdom. Um, yeah, it's not the same. It's not the same. But again, that 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 isolationist tendency. Yeah, yeah. That's what struck me too. Is that she seems to be, you know. She rejects Carinthir's uh, offer of protection, and you know you might think that's not such a bad thing to do, but um, she doesn't. Uh, she doesn't seek to uh, to ally herself with any of the elves or or pretty much anyone else. So that, you know she's leading her people into isolation, and I just can't think that that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I agree with Dave. I certainly don't think that the, you know, the 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 balance of what we get on Haleth here is like a cautionary tale against. But um, but yeah, but certainly there are some uh, there's some there there's some questionable elements. Mike, go ahead. Oh, can we also add to the discussion on Haleth that for my money, she has the most traumatic backstory of any character I've encountered in Tolkien. Am I missing somebody? But I was just rereading, you know, her or the her origins, and it's really gruesome. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, and there will be some. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll read plenty of people's stories later on who are, who are pretty bad, but no, I agree. I mean, she, she, she starts with the, you know, the slaughter of her people and the death of her father and brother and her being left, um, left alone. Now, this is not the story of like some like poor, innocent, impressionable girl whose family is slaughtered and becomes this, you know, hugely powerful Amazonian warrior with a will of iron as a consequence. But because we're told that she uh, she she was already like that before the orcs attacked. But but still, I I, I agree. I think that there's um uh she is in part it it, it it is i think important not to forget that she is in part a product of her uh of her circumstances um and uh remember i mean of course the other thing with her that we haven't mentioned you know Carinthier does come in and rescue her people at the end um and admires them and and is willing to give them lands and things and she won't she won't take it she is given the opportunity sort of she's offered to be made his vassal um 
and unlike Beor, who is you know going and seeking out, can I please, please, please leave my people and come back with you, and be your 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 personal vassal for the rest of my life, my surprisingly short to you life. Um, she is the opposite. She won't take it when it's offered to her. Now you know it's Carinthier, but still, um, this is this is this is this is pretty different. But but no, I agree. I think that we should remember um, the the traumaticness of her background. Dave, well, I would just add too that um, uh, the grass is always greener, of course, and we look and see that like you know, oh, she got all her people killed and took them through the suffering of going through the mountains of terror and yada yada yada. But we have no idea what would have happened had she stayed. Uh, you know, it could be that if she had stayed and become Carinthier's um, uh, vassal, that down the road she would have been involved in all the horrible things, or not she, but her people would have ended up involved in all the horrible things that uh, he and his buddies get up to, or, or even you know, who knows what would have happened to them um, um, during the Battle of Sudden Flame when you know basically everybody gets routed and screwed over. So it could be that in the long run, what she did was really the best for for her progeny. Yeah, and you know certainly the the people of Haleth as a people do seem they're going to make it longer than anybody else. Um, they're going to be after the uh, after the near Nithar They're going to be the only people who are still hanging out and living together as a people. Um, there are still going to be some isolated groups um, and individuals and families of 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 the other kindreds. Um, but down there in Brethel, you're still going to get you know bunches of the people of Hyleth hanging around. So so no, I mean I agree that there are. It's certainly not obvious that the move um, the move to the west has 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 clearly negative uh consequences um that's certainly true um we should go soon but i wanted to comment uh <laughs> jason without a microphone is making lots of great comments tonight which uh i would love to give him a chance to say um but i want to talk about the skepticism of the 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 resistance um to going into Beleriand and staying there um that is the ar- arguments raised by Amlach and Bereg. Um, but, uh, um, so let's see, uh, any of you want to comment? I know, again, I wish, uh, Jason had speaking capabilities tonight, but, um, anybody want to, want to, want to comment on that or represent some of the things that, um, that Jason's been saying about that? Sure. Go ahead, Dave. Sorry. I, I keep chiming in here, but, uh, and I did read Jason's points pretty closely. So I feel like I can do him justice. He, what he was very interested in was the reaction to um, shoot. What the heck is the name of the guy who was who was who had the doppelganger? Amlach. Amlach. Yes. Yeah. Jason was very interested in the not what not what the person portraying Amlock says because of course we know that 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 was probably a spy of Morgoth. But the the reception, in other words, the fact that people were willing to the fact that people didn't dismiss him outright and say, oh, that's hogwash, you know, shut up. But the fact that he was received by at least some people means that that there must have been some seed of doubt in people's hearts or minds, and and uh, and so Jason was very interested in that. The fact that that people were willing to listen to a guy getting up there and saying, "Oh, there's no shore. This is all made up. It's just the Noldor." And um, and uh, I don't know what else Jason was was uh, thought about that beyond his general interest in that. Maybe you know what's sort of the. Oh wait, he's typing. He's typing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll talk a little bit while Jason's typing here. Um, It is interesting. I mean, you've got these, 
if you look at how the arguments go, um, uh, and I, I think that this whole this whole progression is uh, uh, is pretty interesting because the, the elf friends have the first have the first word, um, and they say that. Um, well, no, 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 not the, 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 the leaders of discontent speak first and saying, Hey, okay, look, well, turns out we've gone the wrong way. Um, here we are and we, we were hoping for peace. And now instead we found that we've just come to like the very, you know, the very front lines of the war in the north dwells the dark lord. Um, you know, and there is the pain and death from which we fled. We will not go that way. You know, and what they say is, it seems on pragmatic terms pretty simple. We were fleeing from fear in terror hoping to find peace we believed that it was in the west turns out we're wrong out here in the west this is where he lives we're getting closer to him not further away so how about we turn around and go back away uh and and uh you know and 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 obviously that's the right thing to do and the counter the counter argument to that is sort of more noble but recognizes the same the same sort of points of view right it's like oh no so let's yeah yeah okay true true that the 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 thing we were running away from it turns out we've been running straight towards it but but you know that's probably a good thing and uh you know unless he be vanquished here or at least held in leaguer you know then whither shall we turn that he will not pursue us so uh we might as well we might as well stay here and uh and 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 help, but it's not just like, hey, wouldn't that be pragmatic? The elf friends are also pointing to a higher guiding power. Um, uh, only by the valor of the Eldar is he restrained, and maybe it was for this purpose to aid them at need that we were brought into this land. So they're talking like, there's this higher purpose for our, you know, it's not at all that our quest was totally misguided from the beginning. And it just turns out that like, here we are with egg on our face, you know, we trying to get to peace and it turns out we've been going in the wrong direction. Don't you feel stupid? I feel stupid. Um, you know, they're saying, no, 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 that's not the case. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It does turn out that we've been going towards danger instead of away from it. But, um, but maybe that's how it was supposed to be. Maybe there is a higher purpose. Um, and the only response that Bereg, who is the spokesperson for the um for the for for the resistance, the only thing he says is, let the Eldar look to it. Our lives are short enough. Right? I mean, okay, you know, so like let's let the immortal people bother about this and let's try to because really we don't need to escape from peace permanently. Let's just scrape if I can scrape out like another twenty years of peace or so, that that's that's good. You know, then I'm gonna die and whatever. So fine. Um but then the 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 shift when 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 the Amlach doppelganger stands up and makes his speech, he goes in a totally different direction. Um, let's call everything into question. There is no light in the West. There are no Valar. There is no Dark Lord. You know, all of this, all of this is lies. And all of these things, the Eldar have just been have just been deceiving all of you, and all of this trouble comes from the Eldar, and that's uh, that's pretty. Uh, it's just a completely different shift. Um, and again, their response. Then those that listened sat for a while, astounded, and a shadow of fear fell on their hearts, and they resolved to depart far from the lands of the Eldar. Um, anyway, sorry, I was, I've been going on for a long time, but I, just, I think that the the uh, the the direction of that argument is really interesting, and then the the sudden shift away, and the ra- how radical that shift is, um, to say no, let's let's. It's not a question of is it our purpose to come here or not, but there is no purpose. There is no there is no enemy. There are no gods. There is no Amon. Um, 
Yeah, all of it is all of it is is made up. Can't, you can't help but wonder if Morgoth didn't maybe overplay his hand there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe well, he especially not especially gone right since for he that. Didn't even... Oh, there's no God. You know, everything you believe is completely wrong. Maybe that was a little too radical. He should have <laughs> gone for a little. Shouldn't have gone for broke. <laughs> right, or at least, or or at least have the sense to just off. Uh, Amlock beforehand so that he couldn't come in afterwards and give it all away. So right. I didn't say that. <laughs> right. right. I was, was going to say though he does sow the seeds of doubt. Yeah. You know, he does put that in people's minds that you know even if even if you know it, it turns out that uh, that person was a spy or whatever it still it still puts doubt in people's minds. Yeah, yeah, and I like uh, I, I love the the response after that. You know, this at least you will believe that there is a dark lord in the north. We now have some pretty clear proof uh, that there is in fact an enemy, and his spies are among us. But as you say, Laura, it still works even after it has been. It seems pretty well proven that this speech was made by a spy who is masquerading as as Amlock, yet still they uh they 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 still believe at least some of it um uh and and their that is the seeds of their suspicion of the eldar um is still is still clearly there and so even if they're not even if they're falling short of believing um everything um that that the messenger was saying that is that all of it is completely made up this uh this doubt about can we really trust the eldar does seem to stick and ultimately, that's his main objective. He says that they they say that um, from the very moment that he went out there, his his objective was to drive a wedge between the elves and the men. And so, Loras right that he really plants seeds that don't go away. And even once there's proof, hey, you know, hey, there's proof that there's a bad guy. That then then what people are left with is that's all there is there's still no light across the sea and no good people watching out for us there's just it's even worse now there's just some bad guys out to get us and these elves who are quarreling with them and who knows whether they're really any better than he is um and uh so i think he 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 does his damage in fact the fact that <clears throat> that Amlock does come back and says, "Hey, I didn't say any of that. I think that was a spy." Uh, that just confuses things even more and 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 unsettles people even more and leaves them probably. You know, I mean, I think the the ultimate objective is to get a lot of those men to say, "Uh, I don't want anything to do with any more of this. Let's get out of here." Right, right, right. Um, Jason asks an interesting question: Are is their doubt reasonable? Is it reasonable for them to doubt? that that there is an Amman across the sea and that there are Valar. Because we, of course, know that there is, and the elves know that there is, but these men have no direct proof. They've never been over there. Is is their doubt reasonable? I mean, right. I'd be inclined to say, yes, it's reasonable. Right. But uh, I wonder I what... I agree. What, if Tolkien, does Tolkien have a viewpoint on this? Well, I mean, see, I agree, but I think the interesting thing... To, I, I would sort of come at that from the other direction. The interesting thing is... Is not their doubt, but their lack of doubt before, or rather, their belief in the first place. Um, that is, that they seem to have come into this uh, with a general sense of, hey, there's light in the West. Um, and whether it's just, hey, we're following the sun, you know, the, this is the direction the sun goes every day, so we're just going to, you know, follow it along. Um, 
but uh, but anyway, they believe that there is light in the West, even though they don't really know about it. Um, and you know, did they learn this from the Dark Elves? Maybe they maybe they did. You know, because uh, the Dark Elves also might have heard rumors of. I mean, they they might remember some of them. Um, you know the 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 stories of the of the light in the west and and the trees that the ambassadors one of whom was <laughs> that thingol was one of the ambassadors um anyway that you know the, they came back and told them about the trees and the light in the west so even the avari who who didn't go still um still know about it so it's possible that they've heard something about it but i'm not even sure i mean it just sort of seems that they're drawn they don't they don't they don't really know um they're drawn towards the West. Is it reasonable to doubt that? Yeah. But again, I think it's fascinating that they even have a premise to doubt in the first place. Um, And certainly, um, but yeah, and I do think, notice at the end, um, you know, as, uh, as, as Laura says here in the text that, you know, because of the decision of the Valar to sort of distance themselves, um, they let Morgoth be the only Valar that the men see. Um, yeah, and that's exactly where they end up at the end of that conversation, right? Okay, okay, guys. Well, one thing we can all agree on now, right? There definitely is a Dark Lord. Whatever else you might think about the Light in the West, there definitely is a Dark Lord. We all agree on that. Um, and this, I think, is 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 a really important point to quote out of context the Numenorians from later on the men are indeed going to be operating for the rest of the first stage on a hope without assurance. They will not have seen. All they have to go on is like the reflected light in, in the Eldar's faces. Um, that is always the Noldor's faces. Um, they don't have any evidence other than what they have seen in the Eldar for what actually goes on in the West. And I think that that's, um, I, it is reasonable to doubt that. Um, but the best of the men don't. Um, and I think that, you know, when we, we, we can see again, certainly in the house of Hador, um, the, uh, the crucial, you know, this, this, this willingness to believe this willingness to join together with the elves, which seems to be, which seems to be a good thing. And yes, Matt, yes, it's true. You've got the yada, yada, yada again. So certainly, yes, if they knew the whole story, maybe they wouldn't trust the Noldor as much. Uh, but, and again, yeah, there's certainly, there's a lot not, not to trust there. But it's Finrod we're talking about. Who does, everybody loves Finrod. Um, so yeah, certainly he's, he is, he is wise. He is good. He is beloved. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, see, any uh, Mike, you brought up uh, Melian and Goadriel, which I think is uh, I, I love that conversation, um, and especially since that one is very directly sort of foreshadowing and foreboding events which are soon to come. Uh, we might as well end there. Would you like to? Uh, is there anything, Mike, that you wanted to comment on in particular about Melian and Goadriel's conversation? So from the last chapter and this chapter, it seems like there's kind of a teacher-student relationship to me between Melian and Galadriel. In the last chapter, Melian is looking keenly into Galadriel's eyes to try to discern what's going on in her mind. And in Lord of the Rings, Galadriel now has, you know, she has that skill set now. She does that with the entire fellowship to try to figure out what they're up to. And in this chapter, um, uh, Melian takes Galadriel aside and has this line where she says, you know, now... Um, What's the phrase that was so great? Now the world runs on swiftly to great tidings, and that reminded me an awful lot of the of the uh, quote 
that Galadriel has to Frodo in Lord of the Rings, where she says, In the morning you must depart, for now we have chosen, and the tides of fate are flowing. Um, and so I just saw that between the last chapter and this chapter, there's like these talents and abilities that Melian has that are sort of presented to Galadriel, and it, I, I, I see them as, as talents that then Galadriel then has in the, uh, in the Lord of the Rings. And the, the last one I saw was, uh, it was interesting that Melian takes Galadriel aside, not Thingol, to, 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 to let her know that now things are really going to start happening. In the same way that in Lord of the Rings, Galadriel takes Frodo aside and says, now things are really going to start happening. And she, <laughs> she and her, her comment to Celeborn is sort of this very stilted toast, something like, you know, night must follow noon, don't be sorry, Celeborn. But what she really sort of delivers the real message to Frodo. So that was my comment. Yeah, and I, I mean, the... The, the the way that Melian, I mean, as you say, it's very teacher pupil there. But of course, like this, the subtext to it is really funny. I mean, her husband has just said this boneheaded and incorrect thing. Into Doriath shall no man come while my realm lasts, not even those of the house of Beor who serve Finrod the Beloved. Um, and uh, not only is this. Of course, it turns out a vastly incorrect thing to say, a very importantly inaccurate prediction that Thingol is making, as Melian is about to point out. But it's also a spiteful and unkind thing to say. Like, you know, you know, what would Finrod do, man? That's 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 just not a good attitude. And um, and and Melian doesn't rebuke him, doesn't correct him, doesn't say actually I beg to differ. Um, instead, she turns to Galadriel and is like, "Now watch my husband make a complete mess out of things." Um, and uh, uh, you know, and and yet I don't say anything to reprove him. Um, now the world runs on swiftly to great tidings, and one of men, even of Beor's house, shall indeed come, and the girdle of Melian shall not restrain him, for doom greater than my power shall send him. Um, yeah, there's uh, one of the really cool things about Galadriel. We don't get much from Galadriel uh, in the Silmarillion at all, other than that one nugget that we got way back at the beginning um, when the Noldor rebelled, um, and about her desire to rule a realm and the you know the way in which Feanor's uh, <clears throat> arrogant speech really resonated with her. Other than that, we don't get too much from Galadriel, but what we do see is like her apprenticeship uh, under Melian. And, uh, um, and, and, but, you know, and this does seem to be a re the first moment where we get this kind of a divide between Melian and Thingol and this, this clear gap between what she can see and what he can see. And Mike, you're, you're totally right. We can see the same thing with, with Celeborn, uh, and Goadriel. It happens a couple times, you know, when, when, when Celeborn loses it and gets angry at Gimli, um, when, you know, he finds that the Balrog has been stirred up again and, you know, Galadriel very gently, you know, rebukes him and he apologizes. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> it's, does, it's, Galadriel, it's does Galadriel have an apprentice in Lord of the Rings? Well, I thought that, you know, your parallel with Frodo is kind of interesting. I mean, we don't see... Well, Arwen, right? I mean, Arwen is, is you know, is her granddaughter and is living with her. And of course, she's going to be the parallel, right? She's going to be she's 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 the the second coming of Luthien, right? So she's going to be the one who is in the same just as Melian, you know, Melian to Thingol is as Galadriel to Celeborn is as Arwen to Aragorn. Kind of works. Um, all three of them are marrying down. All three of them are you know queens of a kingdom. 
Um, so yeah, and and Arwen is there under her tutelage. Now we don't see them ever together, um, so we don't we don't get these sort of delightful asides of uh, you know we don't see moments like this with Coatrio turning to Arwen and saying, "Now let me show you how one manages a froward husband." You know, uh, but um, certainly we do get a little bit of that. Um, so I think that that's that, I mean, that that is that is that is interesting. Um, yeah, but I don't know. Um, it's it's hard to do much with it because we never, as I say, we never see them interacting. Um, though again, it's it's while it's it's under Galadriel's watch, as I mentioned before, it's under Galadriel's watch, not under Elrond's watch, uh, that the real engagement between between uh, Arwen and and Aragorn happens. Um, so uh, you know, maybe we maybe we can, in some sense, see that in the appendix as uh, as you know, sort of an effect of Galadriel's uh, action or intervention here. Um, <laughs> yeah, Laura suggesting Gimli uh, as as Galadriel's protege. I love that. Now that that's that's my new. Forget about Arwen. Gimli. Yeah, yeah. Gimli. Melian to Galadriel to Gimli. Absolutely. That's obviously the answer. Okay, good. Uh, I think uh, with that we should uh, uh, we should call it a night. Thanks everybody again for a, a, a lively discussion tonight. Thanks for bearing with us with the uh, technical issues of um, our new interface here, our unexpectedly new interface. Um, but uh, anyway, that was great. So I think we'll. Uh, Oh yes, and I, I we I think we're we're getting uh yes, we start the downward slope uh next week with the the ruin of Beleriand. So um excellent. Yes, sorry Jordan. Uh though uh, we will get one of Fingolfin's shining moments next time. So um Dave, you want two weeks on every chapter. We can't do two weeks on every chapter. Um but uh we can do it. We can do it. Um but I will let Jordan read uh read the Fingolfin scene, so that, that seems only fair. Alright, well thanks everybody. Okay, that's all for tonight's session. Join us next time for chapter eighteen entitled Of the Ruin of Valerand and the Fall of Fingolfin where Fingolfin has his most awesome moment. I would also suggest that you check out Middle-Earth Network Radio. This is an internet radio station where you'll find a mixture of music and talk for serious fantasy fans. That's on the net at myemmyradio.us. To stay informed on future events, press like on the Silmarillionaire's Facebook page and follow our Twitter account, Silmarillionaire. And that's spelled without the final E. So, see you next time. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.